following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 6, 19 to 22. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had returned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning once again. My name is Sam. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Sam. I'm the pastor here at Sacred Seed Church. Again, so glad to have you with us as we are celebrating quite a bit today, um, and we're diving into God's Word once again as we do every week. Um, real quick, though, I, I wanted to—so this, this year, we've dubbed this year the, the, the year we feast to flourish. Actually, it should be a motto every year. Feasting on God's Word day in and day out, um, coming to it, bellying up to the table of God's grace so that we would eat and be satisfied. Um, and so we've been rolling out a daily Bible reading challenge um, plan that's available. Um, it's getting posted up on the social media's bookmarks. Next week, we'll have uh, next month's bookmarks ready for you as we head into April. Can you believe that already? That's un- un- unbelievable. Um, anyway, but uh, another piece of that was putting on these seminars, um, these, these little teaching sessions about helping you um, gain mastery of your Bible, helping you understand how um, the tools, the, what you need to know to study the Bible effectively. So on, uh, I believe it's April 3rd, we've got a slide maybe, April 3rd, we'll have Bible 201 class. Um, that'll be right here in the church building downstairs. Um, I don't know what time. I think it's 6 o'clock. It might be 5 o'clock, but I'll keep you posted uh, on, on, on all of our social media and whatnot like that. So wanted to make you aware of that. Now let's jump into the Word together this morning and belly up to the table. I'm going to pray for you. Would you pr- pray for me? Father God, we, we again thank you for, for your mighty works. No one can do what you do. There's no God like you. God, and you have taken all your power and your might, and you have uh, disposed it toward our benefit, that we would be brought into your family, that, that you would make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. And God, one of the, the traits of the new creation is that we love your word, that we don't harden our hearts, but we open our hearts and receive it gladly. So this morning, would you open our eyes to see what you have for us and unstop our ears, that we might hear your voice Would you soften our hearts so that it would be fertile and receptive ground for the seed of the gospel to be planted, that our whole life would be uh, enriched by your word and your gospel of hope. We pray that you'd be with us right now. God, I pray for, I pray that as we go into this, um, I know the enemy wants nothing more but to distract. Um, uh, The enemy wants nothing more to to create this this ground that will be resistant to uh, the word and, and the seed, the gospel. And so I pray, God, you'd work against the enemy and do what you do, till up the ground so that we, we would receive your word this morning. I pray that, that my words would be spoken with precision, that my mind would think clearly, that my heart would be full of conviction as I bring your word to bear on your people this morning. Speak to us, O Lord, for we are listening. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Uh, for the last several months, we've been going through the book of Ezra. Um, Ezra is, is, is kind of a comeback story. Um, it, it, we, the ser- whole series is called Rebuilding the Ruins because as we open up the book of, uh, of Ezra, God's people have been unfaithful. They've been exported to Babylonian pagan country. Um, where God's judgment has rested upon them. They've lost their sense of cultural identity, their, their spiritual identity of being the covenant people of God, being able to worship in the temple. Their city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. 
And after 50 years of exile, God stirs up in the heart of men to return home and to rebuild from the ruins. So we've been seeing as we make our way through Ezra chapter 1 through 6, this building project that God has started, that he stirred up in the heart of men. And after a season, about 20-some years of working and getting distracted and going back to work and getting what they need to build and all of these things, they finally finish the temple. We saw that last week. There's a big dedication ceremony. They, they devote the house of the Lord solely to the work of God. Instead of, of the Samaritan neighbors who had these temples that were half devoted to the God of Israel and half devoted to these other pagan gods, this is what made the temple of the Lord unique, fully devoted to God. No other gods but the one true God, Yahweh. They dedicate, they celebrate. It's a big old barbecue. They get the sin offering. It's just this huge celebration in the life of God's people. And this week, we have a bit of a thematic hangover where we move into another round of celebrations. We see here, as, as this, these verses were read 19 through 22, that the spirits are high. The, the God's people are joyful in their celebrations as they celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, when we come to this passage here at the end of Ezra chapter six, we might wonder, why is there such an emphasis here? Why does the author put such an emphasis on celebrating? Now, the Bible puts nothing anywhere by accident. Everything in the scriptures is placed there intentionally. It has purpose behind it. So as students of God's word, our job is to seek to understand why it's there. Now when we come to this repeated theme of celebration, the question is why celebrate so much? Just like when we come to, to the Gospel of Mark and you see the word immediately, we just finish, are finishing that up in the March reading plan. You see the word immediately over and over and over. Why is it there? It means something. The same thing for why there are women at the tomb meeting the resurrected Jesus. Why are there women there? For the, why are they the first ones to see the resurrected Jesus? It means something. It's not insignificant. Or why does the Apostle Paul start and end the book of Romans with this phrase, the obedience of faith. It's all there for a purpose. So why does Ezra 6 put such a, a big emphasis on celebrating? It isn't merely just to let us know that the ancient people were capable of having good times too, that they could throw a party just like we can. In fact, I would argue they throw better parties than we can. But, there, but the reason why it's here is because God is showing us that there's something really profound that happens in the midst of celebration. Now, I want to sh show you three profound traits of Christian celebration this morning as we unpack verses 19 through 22. The first one I want to show you is that God not only gives us a reason to celebrate, but he commands it. God commands his people to celebrate. The second thing I want to expose to you this morning is to identify the spiritual payoff. What is the reason? What's the purpose behind calling God's people to celebrate? What does it accomplish? And the third thing I want to show us is that celebrating is an essential part of your discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, you got to know how to party. And so this morning, I'm basically developing a theology of why we should party. Can we do that? Ready? Don't act so excited, guys. Jeepers. Bunch of deadbeats. Come on. Just kidding. Let's party on, Wayne. All right. <laughs> Let's start with this. The God who commands us to celebrate. Now, our natural tendency when we think of God, I, I think if you go to anybody off the street and say, hey, give me, give me your first thoughts about God. I think one of the things that you'll hear very often is that God has this he has this false persona of being very strict, the God of rules. I don't, and you know, and this was something you hear all the time. I don't know, I don't know why you like God so much. He's just, a, he's just a meanie in the sky with a bunch of rules. He's kind of a fun hater. gives that, that feeling. It's the spiritual equivalent of, of the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. No fun for you, right? That's what, that's what people think about God, that he blasts his people with rules and commandments that basically sucks the life out of his people, makes us drab, and stuffy, and unfortunately, some of those stereotypes are reinforced by the, the, the caricatures of pious monks that wear brown, 
eat cardboard and drink water, and that's it. That's their whole life, right? That's, that's, that's as far as the enjoyment of life goes for them. Or the crotchety old church ladies that are pretty good at slapping wrists and telling people not to have fun. I, I think those stereotypes don't do any kind of service. And I think that understanding that people carry of the God of the Bible is, is juvenile and just unbiblical, totally. Because the Bible reveals to us a God who is the source of true and infinite joy and gladness. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand is pleasure forevermore. What's that saying? You get close to God, you find joy, you find pleasure. There is reason to celebrate. And God is not stingy with his joy. He does not keep us off at a distance. He brings us in. His desire is to be near to him. It's even in the prophets that we see uh, uh, inactive in the book of Ezra. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Come back to God and he will come back. He wants us to be in his presence. That's the whole point of the temple. To find the pleasure, the fullness of joy with God. 2 Corinthians 9 tells us that God enriches us in every way. That there's not one single thing that God withholds from us that would be of enrichment to us. He opens up the treasury of heavens, Deuteronomy says, and he lavishes us with his grace and with his joy. Now, one of the ways that God brings us into his joy is by doing for us that which we cannot do ourselves. That's how God just, it's like, it's like this burst, it's like this punch of joy, when God breaks through walls that we ourselves cannot break through. Now, a perfect example of this, and, and really like, sort of like the big one that you see in the Old Testament that just keeps coming up over and over and over again, is what happens in the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus, which is gonna bear relevance on the rest of this passage today, God's people have been in uh, Egyptian slavery, um, well, it's been cruel slavery for, for decades, but in Egypt, in this foreign land, for 400 years. And the cruelty of Pharaoh has crippled the, the life, the flourishing of God's people, and they have been in torment and agony. They cry out to God for help. God raises up Moses, the man of God, to, to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. And, and after plagues, they finally are free. They come to the Red Sea in Exodus 14, and as they are coming to this water, they, they cannot seem to make a pass through it, and behind them are coming Pharaoh and his chariots and his army trying to kill them. They, they change their mind about letting them go out of the land of Egypt. And in that moment, God does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. God opens up the Red Sea. He parts it so they can walk through on dry land, and as the army tries to come behind them, God crashes the seas over them and brings his people into deliverance. We see this. God doing for his people what they cannot do for themselves. That's Exodus 14. Now what's interesting is when you move into Exodus 15, what's their response? What happens in Exodus 15? Let me tell you, the people celebrate. They rejoice with song and dancing None of this stuff where they got their hands in their pockets. Yeah, God brought us out of, out of Egypt. I guess it's kind of cool. Their dance, their bodies can't help but express the gladness that they have for God's activity. This is the natural response for humans. When we see God do what we cannot do, we celebrate. There's no command needed. There was no command to celebrate in Exodus 15. It was from the overflow of their heart that they start to party. Now, we see that natural response from Exodus 14 into Exodus 15, but what about all the rules? I mean, I mean, there are, I don't know if you know this, there are a lot of rules and commandments in the scriptures. There are some 600 Old, Old Testament laws, commandments, whether civil, ceremonial, or moral laws, and, and it's easy for people to see, whoa, 600 laws? That, that's overwhelming, that seems so rest restrictive, and in fact, that, that's one of the things that we tend to equate is the more rules that there are, the more restrictive it is. But this is the paradox of God's law. God only gives rules and laws and commands that open us up to joy. This is the paradox. God's law doesn't restrict joy. God's law is the way to joy. 
And you might wonder, man, I feel pretty joyless in my life. Well, the question I would ask is, what kind of a role is, is the law of the Lord playing? Are, are you neglecting the joy that comes from loving? This, so you see this in Psalm 16. The law of the Lord, we rejoice in it. We find pleasure. It's in the counsel of God that we find the path to life. Or go to Psalm 119. The psalmist just is overwhelmingly blown away, captivated by the law. He sees it as God's goodness to his people. He says, I love the law. See, Christians are people that look at the law like the psalmist of 119. We love the law of God. It opens up to us the way of life, the way of flourishing. It brings us into the deepest joys and satisfactions. But not only is the law, not only is the law of God the path to life, not only is it the way of flourishing, not only is it the way of pleasure, the law of God actually commands his people to celebrate. God gives his people a command to celebrate. For example, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. There's command to celebrate. It's built into our week. Every week, we have a day that's set aside to celebrate. The Sabbath is meant to be a day where we set aside the normal work routines, the, the life that's going on, to rest, to celebrate that which God has done. That's what the Sabbath was. Six days he created, seventh day he rested. He looked back at his creation. It was very good. God invites us into that Sabbath rest. We celebrate the work of God. But then we see some specific celebrations through the Old Testament, Exodus 12, Exodus 23, Leviticus 23. These all have to do with these special feasts that God commands his people to keep every single year. There are three times a year that there are these special feasts. Now, I don't know about you, growing up, my mom would declare these forced family fun things, right? She like made it a law. We're gonna play games and you're gonna have a good time and not grumble about it, you know. And that's not very exciting to be honest. Like forced family fun isn't fun. That's not what this is at all. When God is calling his people to celebrate, when he commands them to celebrate, it's yet another invitation to enter in, to experience the real and lasting joy that God offers his people. It's a chance for us to taste and see, to get our senses ignited, that our heart would be stirred up, that our affections would flow over, looking at what God has done for us. And in this invitation, in this command, this is so gracious of God, he's offering a break for us. He's offering us the chance to take a break from our false and fleeting comforts and joys, to lay hold of what's real, what's true, and what's lasting. God is more for your joy than you are. God cares more about making you a joyful person than you care about making yourself a joyful person. Which is why he commands us to celebrate. Now what we're stepping into here in Ezra chapter six is this acknowledgement of God's commandments to celebrate. After 70 years of being exiled and not having this, this normal um, temple activity established among God's people, right? Those, those normal, um, not only the sin offerings that were meant to be made and the sacrifices and all of the other things, but these big festivals that God puts out in front of God's people to, to participate in every year. After 70 years, they're finally back at it. The regular temple activity is restored. And we see them celebrating the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is what we see in verses 19. Look, look with me. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. And if you jump down to verse 22, and they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. As the regular temple activity is restored, God restores the joy of his people. It's unbelievable, this connection. 
regular worship, regular liturgy, regular song, regular offering. And what happens? What's produced? The joy of God's people increases. Now, one of the things that we see here is that God does what the people cannot do, and it marks it in this. Not, not only do these, these festivals, and we'll get into these, carry some significance, but one of the reasons for their joy is this. And they kept the festival of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. The fact that the word joy and joyful is repeated and so close like, should really be a, an extra oomph to see how joyful these people are. God, the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria or the heart of the, the king of Persia to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here they're acknowledging, once again, God does what only God can do. He changed the heart of the king so that they could rebuild the temple. And now they celebrate. The, the, the mission been accomplished and now we're celebrating the festivals. And the purpose of celebration, it goes far beyond just an experience of joy. It goes beyond just having that lift. Though it is great, though it is a grace that God gives his people to tap into that kind of joy, God actually does something very profound when he commands his people to celebrate. Let me show you four things. The first thing, that when God commands his people to celebrate, Celebrating roots God's people in history. Now, it's hard to read through books like Ezra and Nehemiah that are actual historical narratives that, that are recapping like a legitimate moment in time, a, a historical event where God had intervened among his people in such a significant way that, that it literally altered the trajectory of all of, of human history. History is God's ledger of his past faithfulness. And so when God calls his people to celebrate, specifically with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God is telling his people, look back to see what I have done in the past. Now again, this ties us back to the Exodus story, the, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that, that all has to do with God delivering his people, redeeming his people out of Egyptian slavery. And you might be familiar with this, the Passover. Now, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go so they would worship God in the wilderness, and Pharaoh would, would you know, he denied it every single time. Well, he kind of let up, and then he'd eventually deny it. The, the last thing that God did after, after all of those plagues, the final plague was that of the Passover. That, that every firstborn in the land of Egypt both in the house, so firstborn child or firstborn of livestock, would be killed. Every firstborn would be killed unless the blood of the Passover lamb was painted over the doorposts of God's people. And in that case then, the angel of death would pass over that home and the firstborn would be spared. Now, God made that available to everybody in the land of Egypt, not just the Israelites. The Israelites heard God and did what he said to do, and they reaped the reward of that. Their firstborns were spared. But the majority of the house of Egypt, they did not do that. And with a great wail, great cry, they wake up to find the firstborns had perished. God had executed his judgment on the people of Egypt. And as he did that, he passed over his own people. He preserved and saved his own people. Now, their response to the Passover, Egypt's, Pharaoh's response was to the people of Israel to say, get out of here now, promptly. They, they it says they were thrust out of the land of Egypt. They had no time to really grab anything, which is why God had told them ahead of time, prepare for yourself these breads that are unleavened. You, you won't have time, you know what leaven does? Yeast, it, it makes the dough rise, right? If, if you're gonna break, break bread, I've got a very extensive bread knowledge here, so let me tap you in on that. If you're gonna make bread, and if you don't wanna have flat bread, you're gonna throw some yeast in there. It has a rising agent. It's gonna make it poofy and soft and squishy, and I'm on a diet right now and just thinking about it, it makes my mouth salivate. That's what it does. But God said, hey, you are not gonna have time for the dough to rise. 
You're not gonna have time to prepare your, your, your provisions like you would normally do. So what you're gonna do is take out the yeast, you're gonna make these little patties, these little flat pieces of bread, and this is what you're gonna have to go to sustain you on your way out of the land of Egypt. And that's what they do. So they get thrust out of Egypt, no time to prep, no time to let their bread rise. And what this shows us here in this, this unleavened bread reality, the fact that they need unleavened bread, it points to the fact that God brings them out of Egypt, telling them, I'm gonna bring you into the promised land, but also how expediently God does that. God acts in a moment. And when God acts, it happens. Now, there might be something significant there tied back to Mark's gospel after he uses the word immediately like 40 sometimes, right? There's, there's some sort of connection here through the word of God from Old Testament to New Testament. And as they are delivered out of the land of Egypt, they get to the other side, Exodus 23. Well, even when God's telling them what to do in preparation for the Passover, God's telling them, this is a meal. This is a celebration that you need to keep forever. You will observe this forever. And when your children ask you, what in the world are we doing? Why is, there, why is there a Passover lamb? Why is there blood everywhere? Why are we eating this flat loaf of bread instead of having the squishy, gooey stuff? You tell them, we're doing this because God had acted to redeem his people. God wanted his people to never forget what he has done. So he says, I command you to celebrate this. To keep the Passover meal, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, listen, if you want to talk about throwing good parties, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week long. It started with the Sabbath, a bonus Sabbath. So depending on where it fell on, on the actual week calendar, it would be, the start of it would be a day of rest. You would rest. And then the next few days would be a big old party, and there might be another Sabbath in there, but then you would end it with another day of rest. Why? Why does God make this connection between the unleavened bread and the rest? It's because he had delivered his people out of slavery where all they did was cruel labor and now they rest. And God makes this stipulation here. He says, when you, when you celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, you need to purge your entire household of, of any, any yeast or raising agents. All of it, take it out. Now this is significant here because with the exception of one place that I, that I can think of off the top of my head, when scripture speaks of leaven, yeast, it's typically in a negative connotation. It's synonymous, it's a, it's a metaphor imagery for sin and how sin, even a little bit of sin, can contaminate, contaminate a whole loaf. So this idea of, of purging the yeast, it, it reflects the spiritual thing of putting away the idols of the land of Egypt, putting away the false gods, putting away their sin, casting it off. And every time you celebrate, every time you share the Passover meal and feast of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you are proclaiming the history of God to the next generation. You are teaching your kids. You're raising your Ebenezer. We sang that this morning, come thou found. Here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're like, what? Ebenezer, Scrooge, what are we talking about? No, no. An Ebenezer is this, this thing that signifies that God has moved. It used to be like a pillar of rocks. It could be some sort of statue. It could be something significant that you point at. It could be, you could be, it could be literally anything that points back and reminds you of what God has done. It's a reminder of God's work. That's what these festivals were meant to be. Teach your kids what God has done. Reach back in the past. God roots his people in his past redemptive work when he commands us to celebrate. Now, as, as we tie this in, this moves us into purpose number two. The reason why we celebrate, the reason why God commands us to celebrate serves as a means of identity formation. Now, this is something we talked about when we were in the, the book of uh, Ephesians talked about identity formation, understanding who you really are. Now, everybody struggles with this concept of who am I really? We're all looking for our identity, and we tend to either go to um, what we do, what we accomplish, our successes, our work. Uh, maybe it's family life. I, I find myself by being a mom or a dad. We look to all these places to define ourselves and give us a, a bit of solid ground. Now, the problem with that, any identity that's not Jesus is going to prove itself to be sort of volatile. And by sort of volatile, I mean it will be proved to be volatile at some point. 
If it's not Jesus, it is not a firm foundation. It's not the, it's not a, you cannot base your entire life on any of those things. And we go through this identity confusion. And celebrating is a means that God says to his people, this is who you really are. You are my people. I have redeemed you. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you might say, well, I'm not actually Jewish. I, I have no Jewish lineage. Well, neither do I. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul says that if you have faith in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. We have a spiritual heritage. So when we celebrate, when we look back at these past celebrations, it's part of identity formation reminding us who we really are. You are the people of God. You are part of God's covenant people. This is who you are. As often as you celebrate in this, you are reminded of that reality of who you are. Now you see this because when they're, when they're the informal reference to God's people in the book of Ezra is the Jews. But when they're referred to as the people of Israel, as they are here in verse, I want to say verse 21. Let me find it. I'll, I'll, yep, verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel. That's their covenant name. They're being referred to in light of the covenant. They're God is solidifying their identity. Now the third purpose for celebrating is that celebrating is missional. Celebrating draws attention to God. Now I don't, I don't know if you've ever been downtown Moline. Um, I think it's Thursday nights. Um, there's the Mercado on 5th. Anybody seen that stuff going on? They got a big old open plaza. They got food vendors. And every time I drive by that, I think it's on Thursday, I'm just like, I should probably go check that out sometime. What, what, what is that? What is that, re that reflex that we have when we see a party going on? You drive down the block and you see your neighbors. Oh, they must be throwing a party. And part of you is thinking, I wonder if I could just walk over there and hang out. You know, and, and if you're like my son Kuiper, no shame in that. He's going over, right? <laughs> He's going. But there's something about celebration that draws people in. Now, what we see here in these Old Testament festivals, these Old Testament celebrations, they have the same effect. These celebrations draw people into the story of redemption. They draw people to God. As they do this, as we celebrate, right? Because it's not just like we're, we're going off and we're getting drunk and we're partying the way that the culture says this is what it looks like to party, lavishly spending on silly things and whatever. God has a specific way of, of calling his people that does involve some libations, but again, to the glory of God, to eat and to drink as Christians, to honor God in all things that we do. So the, the kind of celebration that, that God has for his people is set apart from that of the culture and the world. And one of the things that we do is not just celebrate to celebrate, but to celebrate to make the wonderful works of God made known to people outside of our circle. That those outsiders might feel the gravitational pull of grace and come in. This happens in a lot of places in the scriptures. I mean, God is for, like, the, the two big categories, classifications of people in, in the Old Testament is that of Jews and Gentiles. You move into the, the New Testament, but then the dividing walls of hostility have been dropped. But these two, these categories, it's like God's people are the Jews, and, and the people that God doesn't like are the Gentiles, but actually that, that's, that gets blown up when you read the scriptures. That God has been working, even in the Old Testament, to draw people who are outside of the covenant family into the covenant family. And you see this even in the Exodus. When they leave Egypt, it's a mixed multitude. It's not just the Jews. It's not just the Israelites. There are some Egyptians that come out with them. There's some other probably slaves from different nationalities, different um, people groups that are brought into God's covenant people. And when they do that, they take on the sign and the seal of covenant, which back then was circumcision, so that's a hard sell, but they did it. <laughs> but they did it because they found the surpassing worth of God. They saw what this God of the Israelites could do, and they wanted to be near him. Now, the same things happen here in verse 21. 
As it's, as it's the people of Israel that returned from the exile that are worshiping and celebrating, we see this also. It says, also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So here before, we saw this, this, this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. And now some of the Samaritans that were hostile towards them, that, were, that had animosity towards the work that God was doing in the temple, they're starting to say, oh, maybe there's something to this God of Israel. And so what do they do? Well, this is, this, is, this is language of repentance. They put off that which is unclean. They put away their false idols and their false gods, and they come to worship the one true God, the God of the Bible. See, God uses celebration for mission which is why one of the reasons at Sacred City, we, we are, one of our, our rhythms that we invite our people into as the people of God is to celebrate, to find reasons to celebrate. Birthdays, anniversaries, baptisms, professions of faith, dedications, big you know, anniversaries, I said that already, but all kinds of things that we can celebrate, big and small. Even when you sit in missional community and you give evidence to the grace. Hey, I got my car fixed this week, that was great. Somebody from my MC paid to help that out. That's an evidence of grace, let's celebrate. And when we have these opportunities to celebrate and throw parties, one of the things that we encourage us, the people here to do is to invite not just your church family, but those who are not yet believers in to share in the joy. Now, again, I said, as Christians, we point to what God has done, but as Christians, when we celebrate, we're not just celebrating the gifts, but the giver of the good gifts. Every good thing comes from the hand of God. And so when we celebrate, we ought to recognize that. And when we do that, when we give thanks to God, it piques curiosity. People begin to wonder, can I, can I get blessed by this God like you have been? And Romans 10, verse 13, lays out this promise. It says, everyone, everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. It means that you, anyone, can get in on it if you call on the name of the Lord. And then guess what happens in Romans 11? It moves into this whole big thing about how God grafts in the Gentiles to the people of God. Anybody can get in on it. Celebration is missional. Reason number four. This is, this is the big one. Reason number four why God commands his people to celebrate is because it points us to Jesus. Every single Old Testament celebration was a foreshadowing, was a signpost pointing to Jesus who would come as the true and better fulfillment of that thing. Here they're celebrating the Passover lamb, the lamb whose blood was shed so that they would be delivered, that they would be redeemed out of the land of Egypt. Well, Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. That any and all who are under the blood of Jesus, those are the ones who are delivered out from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus is the true and better unleavened bread. He is the bread of life. That Jesus was the sinless man. No deceit was found upon him. No sin, no contamination. He was pure and righteous, lived a full a life fully pleasing to God in every single matter. The unleavened bread feast reminds us, just as they were promptly delivered out of Egypt, of how prompt the transfer is for us. That in a moment, before you put your faith in Jesus, you are occupying the domain of darkness under the thumb of Satan. And in a moment, the Lord Jesus plucks you out of that and delivers you into the kingdom of the beloved Son. How expedient the work of God in salvation. All of these things point to Jesus to show that he redeems and sustains his people and he brings us to God that we would have access, that we would find the fullness of joy that is promised at his right hand. So these Old Testament celebrations point forward, and, and, and they didn't know it yet. You know, many, many of those people 
They didn't realize that this was just a placeholder until Jesus would come. But where we stand on this side of eternity, on this side of the cross, we see the same thing happening for us too. When we celebrate, it points to Jesus, except it points backwards and forwards. It points back in the reality that Jesus has come. He has already given himself as a once and for all sacrifice, that his body was broken, his blood shed. And when we see that, 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 that the purpose of celebrating is to point to Jesus, it keeps Jesus at the center of our life. And this is why celebration is not just a piece of discipleship, but an essential piece of discipleship. To keep our eyes upon Jesus, puts him at the center, and everything else happens in relationship to Christ. Now, as I say this, you might be wondering, well, does that mean that we should be returning back to the Old Testament festival? Should we be going back to those three big festivals that happen every year? The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Should we be going back to that? Yeah. Yes, it does mean that. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 through 8 says this, For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore keep the festival. Now, I say yes, but let me put this caveat here. The way that we celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread has changed. There's a new way to do it. The new covenant provides us a new infrastructure for the way that we celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let me tell you this. It's no coincidence that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover. What did Jesus tell his disciples to go do? Go prepare a place for me. It's Passover. So we can have the Passover meal in the upper room. And what did he do that night? He got his disciples around the table. He broke his bread. He said, this is my body that's given for you. It's broken for you. Here's my blood. Passes the cup. Here's the blood of the new covenant that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's not, it's not a coincidence that it happens on the same day that they're celebrating the Passover. So what does that mean? Each time we receive the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of the true Passover lamb. Do you know that? Every Sunday, every time we gather, we're celebrating the true Passover lamb. That it was his body, it's not, not the body of a sheep, but it was Christ's own body that was broken. It's the unleavened bread, the uncontaminated bread that, 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 was, that was broken there on the cross. That it was his blood, the wine, that was shed for us. And we celebrate this not one time a year like the Jews did. We celebrate it, I don't know, like 53, 54, 55, as often as we gather for, for worship. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is the Passover meal. Now, this is the meal that unifies all true Christians whether Jew or Gentile. All are invited. All who have their trust and faith in Jesus are invited to the table. And as we come to the table, it, it's two things. It's both joyful and somber. Let me, let me get into this. That as we approach the Lord's Supper, there's this, this um, sobriety that it produces. There, there's this reflective state that as we come, we're, we're getting a bit introspective and we're examining our hearts in fact, this is one of the, the things that we do that's emphasized during the season of Lent, this, this self-examination, this, this looking in to be introspective so that we can ultimately look to Christ and see the answers to our problems. And so as we approach the table, we do so in a posture of repentance. And what is repentance? Well, repentance is the turning away of sin and walking towards righteousness. Or in other words, repentance is the unleavening of your life. It is where you eject sin from your life. You confess, you repent, you turn. You're ejecting the leaven so that you can live as a new lump, right? The new creation that God has made, the new identity that you have. You're ejecting the old self and living into the new self. And every time we approach the Lord's table, we're meant to take an inventory of our soul. To do, well, not just an inventory, we're, we're called to do some deep soul cleaning. Like, can you imagine? I've got kids trying to get all of the leaven out of my house. I've got Cheerios under everything that I own. Crumbs, breadcrumbs, chicken nugget crumbs. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. But try to purge your house of all of that stuff. And then think of this. It's, it's, 
it's a metaphor for the, the sin that's in our lives. Not just the big loaves of bread that we can say, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have got drunk this week. That was, that was clearly in violation of God's law. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have had an affair. That was clear. I shouldn't have done that. But the little stuff, the jealousy, the pride, envy, gossip, those little crumbs that contaminate your life. Every time we come to Lord's Supper, it's house cleaning. It's soul cleaning. Get those things out. And it's easy. You, you see all that stuff pile up. You see that the, 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 all of the, uh, the dust pile accumulate. All the sin that you've got in your life that you're trying to eject. It'd be easy to, to, to go to a place of despair. Say, oh man, I'm such a failure. I've really blown it. All this sin in my life. How can... But it's right there where God's grace meets us. It's in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of sin, that the gospel becomes good news, where Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross, Jesus doing what we cannot do for ourselves, the light shines, the glory unfolds, and repentance does not end in a a dreary place of despair, but repentance refreshes the soul. Because when we repent, we not only turn away from our sin, but we look to Jesus and we see that Jesus took on our sin. God said that anybody who has leaven left in his house will be cut off from him. If you don't, get it cut, if you don't remove all of the leaven, you'll be cut off from God's people. But Jesus was the one who was cut off for us. All of our sin was placed upon him. And he was cut off from God. You hear the cry of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus was cut off so that we could be grafted in, that we could become part of God's family, our sins forgiven, our lives remade in Christ. And so that's why the Lord's Supper is not just this reflective sort of somber meal. It actually transforms into a joyful celebration. It's explosive joy. It's realizing that God in Christ did what we could not do for ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. We couldn't deliver ourselves out of sin. And so we repent. We put off all of the pretense, all of the false attempts at at trying to, to be better. And we cling to Jesus in repentance. And every time a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. Do you know that? Every time you come, and I'm not just saying uh, every time a sinner repents for for the first time. Every time you repent, heaven rejoices. There's a celebration going on in the cosmos, in the heavens, as we repent of our sins. And it's an invitation for us to get swept up in that is a joyful encounter. And the Lord's table brings us right in the heart of that every single week. Not only points us back to the past where Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, but also to the future. That there's a future joy, a future celebration that's coming, and this is a foretaste of that. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb where the bride of Christ will be totally unleavened. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Like, it's crazy. The church, she's kind of a hot mess. And, And every time that people become new members of Sacred City, I'm a little bit surprised because we're all kind of a hot mess. But one day, Sacred City Church, among the church universal, will be presented back to God as this beautified bride. All of the sin pushed out, totally white and radiant in the work of Christ. And there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in this supper, Jesus doesn't just come as a lamb, he comes as a king. Now what's interesting here, one of the reasons that that people are rejoicing here in Ezra chapter 6, is because God had turned the heart of the king in their favor? Well, Jesus is the king whose heart is always pointed in the disposition of his people. Jesus is the king whose heart is always for his people. There's no need to turn God's heart towards us. It's always for us. And because he is for us, he will consummate the kingdom. He will, he will unfold the eternal celebration, the, the eternal celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb where all of the leaven will be ejected, all of the products of sin and brokenness will be done away with. Death, sickness, pain, grief, gone. And so this meal for the Christian is a foretaste of that. It's a, it's a pregame, if you will, <laughs> 
You come to the Lord's table and you pregame for the party that's about to come when Jesus brings and consummates the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, the only way that you get into this party, it's really simple. If you cling to Jesus, if you look and see that he was the sacrifice that appeases God for you and cling to him in faith, boom, you got VIP access, bro. It's for you. God is for you. He's laid out every provision for you. So as Christians, we celebrate this. Gospel celebration is an incredibly important part of your discipleship for all of those reasons. Points us to God's act in redemption in the past, solidifies our, our identity. I'm blanking on the third one. Somebody help me out. Well, you got it. But it ultimately points to Jesus. Missional, thank you. Points to Jesus, it's missional. Without gospel celebration, we lose sight of what Jesus has done and what he promises he will do. Celebration keeps Jesus central. And the way that we celebrate, the way that we do discipleship, is in community and on mission. We're proclaiming the joy of Jesus to one another as we anticipate the joy that is to come. And the more that we celebrate the, the gospel, the more the kingdom of heaven unfolds right before us, the more on earth as it is like heaven. So Christian, come to the table. First, examine yourself. Unleaven the loaf. But know that Jesus has paid every provision necessary for you to come and eat, for you to be near to God, to lay hold of every joy that is at his right hand. Let us celebrate this morning. Father, we thank you for, for what you have done in Christ Jesus. You've done what we cannot do ourselves. And only, only the foolish will continue to try to prove themselves, that will get on the treadmill of, of religion, of self-bolstering. God, I ask that this morning, if there's anybody just worn out from that, that they would just step off that treadmill and, and enter into the rest of Christ. What a gift. For us right now, as we come to the table, an invitation to rest in the work of Jesus. Would the Lord's table this morning remind us of his sacrifice that was made on our behalf, what he did for us, and that our hearts would be filled with worship, and that we would celebrate the good news of the gospel now and forever, and that we would teach it to our children and our children's children, because you are worth it, God. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.